First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Hello, American Government Civics. Welcome to uh, the review for your final exam. The review is a district assessment and uh, is taken on the computer. So uh, be prepared for that. Your teacher will give you a code and um, yeah, you'll take it on final exam day. All right, so let's uh, review for this. So we're going to go through some of the AKS that you've had to cover throughout the semester, um, going all the way back to August, which I know is a long time ago, uh, but there is going to be some stuff on there that you need to know and remember. So let's get started. So first up is a presidential versus a parliamentary system. Now, first off, the similarities. Uh, both a presidential and parliamentary system uh, are a system where you have kind of two branches. You have a congressional branch and you have an executive branch. In the presidential uh Example, excuse me, uh, that's where we're at in America. We have a Congress and then we have a president. And the parliamentary system, a good example of this would be over in England. They have a parliament and then they have a prime minister. So similar, but where we get different and what you need to remember is the differences. And the big one is how do they choose that leader? In our system, the presidential system, we, the people, get to go out and vote and pick the president. Versus the parliamentary system where it is going to come from the parliament. So the people have an indirect voice. They get to elect the parliament members, but they don't get to elect the president. Next up are some philosophers. Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, and Montesquieu. Uh, Hobbes is going to um, kind of start with a social contract. Social contract is going to... So all these guys are going to contribute. Well, not all of them. Um, Montesquieu doesn't really, but Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau will kind of contribute all to the, the theory of social con the social contract. Hobbes is going to write about the social contract and the fact that you know we as people we can govern ourselves. However, as we get larger and larger as groups, you know we we tend to run into problems governing ourselves, and so we come up with this agreement where we as people give up our right to govern ourselves, and we in turn turn it over to the government. The government in turn says they'll. I don't want to say protect us, but they'll make rules and laws and policies that will take care of us, uh, make sure we're we're safe, secure, and have some of the basic necessities. Locke is going to be the natural rights person. Uh, you might remember him from his influence on the uh, Declaration of Independence. So he writes about everyone has the right to life, liberty, and property. And then Jefferson will change that to the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the natural rights, that's a big thing. And he's also big into the fact that the government should protect everyone's natural rights. Rousseau will expand upon on the nat on the social contract, excuse me, uh, and write about uh, the freedoms that people deserve there. And then Montesquieu is going to be the separation of powers. So he comes up, all of these guys come up uh, in a time when there's monarchs and they can make rules and enforce rules and judge rules, laws, all on the same day. So he writes about the fact, hey, we need to have uh, those powers separated out. And the framers of the Constitution will take that to heart as, you know, we have three branches of government now. We have the uh, legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch. And that idea comes directly from Montesquieu. 
All right, the constitutional debates. First off, it's a great compromise. So uh, after the Revolutionary War, we had the Articles of Confederation as a government, and that didn't work out. It was a weak government. And there was a lot of problems, a lot of issues with it that we're not going to get into right now. But eventually there was a need for something new or an overhaul. And so the framers went to the convention thinking they were going to make changes to the the Articles of Confederation itself. James Madison rolls up with a whole new plan. He has the Virginia plan and it calls for a whole new government, Uh, one where there is a legislature, there is an executive, there is a judicial branch. And all these different things. Uh, and the idea here is that population is going to determine the amount of representation you have in the House of Representatives, which it wasn't the House of Representatives at the time, but in the, the Congress. Alrighty, It was just one single Congress at the time. Um, and then the little states didn't like that. Little states were like, eh, you know what? We uh, aren't big fans of the big states getting to dominate us because just because they have more people. So they came up with a New Jersey plan. And the New Jersey plan is going to call for equality. So, hey, we'll all have the same amount of representatives. And so uh, for us, it's really simple. Hey, let's just combine those two into the Great Compromise. And we'll have a two-house legislature, one based on population, one based on uh, equality. It took a little bit for them to do that, but eventually they would come to that conclusion. And that's what the Great Compromise does. It combines the New Jersey and Virginia plans and gives us a House of Representatives where the population will determine the the amount of representatives you have, and a Senate, where everything is equal. The three-fifths compromise is the next one. The three-fifths compromise is based on a couple of issues, uh, representation and taxes, and then how to count the slave population. So population was going to count for two things. It was going to count for the amount of representatives you had in the House, like we just talked about. It was also going to count for the amount of taxes you paid. So the South thought, you know what, we have this great big population down here, and uh, we want that population to count for representation purposes. But when it came to taxes, they said that the slave population should not count. The North was the opposite. They wanted the slave population to count for uh, tax purposes for the South, but not for representation. So that's where the argument comes from. Uh, Once again, we snap our fingers and, hey, three-fifths compromise, there we go. Uh, It took a while for them to get to that solution back then, but eventually they do come up with the three-fifths compromise where three-fifths of the slave population will count for both taxes and representation. All right, getting into the principles of the U.S. Constitution. First up is the limited government. And what this means is we want a government not small. A lot of people see limited and like, oh, we want a a mini government. Limited means we want restrictions placed on them. So that's what the Bill of Rights does. It places restrictions on the government, things the government cannot take or do uh, to you or from you. All right. Think about the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, things like that. The rule of law is pretty simple. Uh, Law should be applied equally to everybody, you know, uh, everybody in the country, uh, no matter the position. So from the top leaders down to me and you, we should have the rule of law applied to us all equally. Uh, federalism, we're going to talk about a little more in just a second, but federalism is the sharing of powers between multiple governments. So in our system, we have the federal government, the national government up in D.C. We also have the state government down here in Georgia that we have to listen to. Uh, we can go even further with our county, our cities, and things like that, but you get the idea. Federalism is the sharing of powers between uh, the, the different branches, of, or not the branches, excuse me, but the different levels of government, federal, state, county, all those sorts of things. Separation of powers we just talked about. That is the idea that we should have um, branches of government. We should not have one person, one entity able to do all the different things 
that those branches can do. Checks and balances are the, uh, the kind of the watchdog function of the branches uh, and the separation of powers. So, for example, the president can veto laws that Congress passes. That's a check and balance. Alrighty. Uh, so checks and balances are just this idea that we don't want one branch to become too powerful. So we put these checks in place that keep the branches from becoming too powerful because the other branches are watching and able to stop them. Popular sovereignty is the idea of um, authority, basically. Uh, you might have heard it and remember it from U.S. history back uh, as the expansion west happened, uh, and they were trying to decide which states should be uh, a slave state and which states should be free states. And the idea of popular sovereignty was thrown around. Hey, let the people decide. They have the authority. That's what sovereignty is, is basically the authority. Uh, they have the authority to, to pick and choose themselves. And that's, that's where the elections come from uh, back then, like Bleeding Kansas and, and those instances. A judicial review is just the uh, ability of the courts to declare laws unconstitutional. So that comes from Marbury versus Madison, which was a court case from way back when, um, which I think we get into later on. <laughs> But uh, it just allows the courts to declare laws unconstitutional. And then you've got the Commerce Clause. The Commerce Clause allows the federal government to control interstate commerce. So as soon as something crosses state lines, that is automatically a federal issue, and it goes out of the state's hands. All right, the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists. So the Federalists were for the strong central government. The Anti-Federalists were against it. Uh, now, that's a pretty simplified version and way of saying that. Uh, but if you can remember that, then you're probably in pretty good shape. Uh, but the Federalists, they were for the strong central government. They wanted to get rid of, not maybe not get rid of, but they wanted to reduce the power and the authority of the states. They recognized, hey, this isn't working. All right. Uh, and then the Anti-Federalists, they were against the central government. And that might even be a bad way to say it. They just wanted the states to maintain some power, control, and authority. All right. Checks and balances in relation to the three branches of government. So I said the, the president can veto pieces of legislation. Uh, that Congress passes. Uh, that's a big one for them. Uh, Congress has the ability to impeach uh, the other two branches, so they can impeach the president. They can impeach uh, justices of the court. They also have the advice and consent where they have to consent to uh, presidential appointments, to presidential um, treaties, and things like that. Uh, the judicial branch, really, their big one is judicial review. They can declare other actions that Congress and the president do as unconstitutional. All right, the federal government versus state government's relationship and the balance of power. The federal government is supposed to be the ultimate authority. All righty. Uh, in fact, the next thing is the supremacy clause, which we'll talk about. It says that, hey, Constitution is number one. Then comes the uh, national government, the federal government, uh, when it comes to states. So the federal government, in theory, should be able to tell the states this is what to do. However, the states don't always listen. To me, the states are like little kids. They, the little kids go, go off and do what they want to. And the parents are saying stuff, but little kids are like, yeah, this looks fun. I'm going to go do it. And the states kind of are in the same way. However, the federal government does have one thing that the states really, really want and what gets the states to do things that they might not otherwise want to do, and that is money. The federal government is going to fund most of the state's uh, budget needs come from the federal government. If you were to take away the federal money uh, from the states, then they would be in trouble. All right. The balance of power. Once again, the federal government is supposed to be in charge and the states are supposed to uh, listen and do what the federal government says. Um, it usually works eh, kind of for the most part as the federal government uses the money to twist the arms of the states. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and that leads me to the supremacy clause. The supremacy clause is 
something that the, the framers put into the Constitution, has its own article. Article 6 of the Constitution says, hey, the Constitution is the, the rule of the, of the land. This is number one. So if we make a list, the Constitution is number one. We all got to follow this thing. Number two is federal laws, national laws. Uh, and then we get into treaties and things like that. And the states are way down there. So they put in there uh, the fact that, hey, we as states have to listen to the federal government. All right, let's take a quick break. Be right back. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome back, American Government Civics. We're picking up uh, with the Bill of Rights. So the Bill of Rights, uh, it comes into play because of the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists. So the Anti-Federalists were kind of on board with the whole new Constitution. However, they said, we don't like the fact that there's no rights listed in that document. And if you go through the Constitution, there aren't any rights for us as individuals listed in there. Now, the federal federalist, excuse me, their argument is, well, you know, this new government would never, ever violate people's civil liberties, people's rights. And the anti-federalist is like, well, we're not so sure. So we want it in writing. So the compromise for the anti-federalist to sign off on the new Constitution was the Bill of Rights. And so that's where the first 10 amendments comes from, is that agreement to... Um, to, hey, we'll sign off on this thing as long as we have this Bill of Rights. And we're going to get into some of the rights later on down the road uh, in this review. So I'm not going to go over them now. All right, nomination and election process. So we're fixing to get into this in January with the primaries and the caucuses. Uh, basically, the Republicans are going to go and pick the person that they want to be the presidential nominee to run in the 2024 election. So we as citizens get to go vote uh, for that. There's not going to be a Democrat primary because Joe Biden is the incumbent meaning he's already in office, and the Democrats are probably not going to make him run uh, in the primaries unless something weird happens. You know, I know he's got some low popularity uh, numbers in a couple of uh, polls and things like that, but I, I still don't think they're going to make him run in a primary. So we won't have that opportunity. However, you will have the opportunity if you're 18 to go vote in Georgia's primary uh, when it's in, I think it's in March or something like that, but you can help pick the, the Republican nominee. Um, and that's what that is. That's what a primary is. Not aware of what a caucus is, is the people getting to go pick the nominee for the party. So it really reduced the power of the parties. Uh, the general elections is what you'll vote for in November of 2024. So about uh, 11 months from now, you'll be able to go vote for the president and a couple of different congressional positions and some local elections. The Electoral College, remember, this is the group that's actually going to elect the president. So you will go vote and your person has to win, has to win the state in order to get that state's electoral college votes. So your vote does matter very much so, especially in the states. Um, So you go vote here in Georgia, you vote for somebody, they get 50.1% of the vote here in Georgia. They get all 16 of our electoral college votes. That means that 16 people are going to cast votes for the president at the December electoral college meeting. You got to get to 270 to win that. All righty. So 270. Uh, campaign funding and PACs. First off, just a side note about just campaign funding in, in general. The numbers are crazy. Um, the last two elections, the Democrats 
Biden and Clinton have raised over a billion dollars. Trump has raised over $750 million in both uh, of his campaigns, 2016 and 2020. Numbers that are just out of this world. Alrighty. Uh, so for us, the one thing we're really worried about is the PACs, political action committees. And this is just a way uh, to raise more money and donate it and run advertisements and things like that. So there's limits on how much you can donate as an individual, but then you can give money to these PACs, political action committees, who will turn around and give money to the candidates, plus do some campaign activities for them. Citizens United versus FEC. This is a court case uh, and it I'm not going to get into all the details, but Citizens United had created a movie called Hillary the Movie. Uh, it was against Hillary Clinton back in 2008 when she was running against President Obama in the, the Democratic primaries. And they had taken money from the businesses and corporations, and that violated uh, the Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act. And so that's why the movie got shut down. Well, Citizens United says that's not fair. And so they took the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, to court. The Supreme Court is going to rule this, and this is probably what you got to remember. They ruled that the money that businesses and corporations donate is tied to free speech. So basically they, basically they equated free speech and donations of money because the corporations don't have an actual voice. So basically, if you can remember that the campaign donations, the money is going to be considered free speech, you're probably in good shape for the Citizens United versus FEC. Influence of the media. The media plays a pretty big role in uh, our politics because they're going to really cover the winner. Okay, so as you, if you'll pay attention, and I know you're about to be out of a government class, but if you'll pay attention to the primaries that happen in January, February, March, see who the media covers. They cover the winners. Okay, they cover the leaders. They're not going to cover the people at the back. So the media is going to, whether they mean to or not, influence who people view as having a chance to win. Campaign advertising, uh, you'll see and you probably have seen and heard campaign advertising uh, commercials on TV, radio, billboards, all kinds of things. Uh, and that plays a role. And then public opinion polls, uh, these are run all the time and all over the place. Don't always trust public opinion polls because they, uh, they're just not always to be trusted. You know, you never know uh, when one is incorrect uh, and it could influence you because, you know, here's the thing. People see that their person is way behind and so like, eh, I'm not going to go vote. Or they see their person's way ahead and like, I don't need to go vote. So it can have an effect uh, if you see those and let it sway you. All right. How citizens voluntarily take part in the political process. Pretty simple. Uh, you're going to go vote probably. All right. Um, you, that's probably the number one way any of us will ever go do anything. Requirements to become a citizen. So this is the whole naturalization process, uh, and you got to live in the country for a couple of years. I'm, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna say it's seven uh, that you have to be here, uh, and then you have to go through a process and eventually take the citizenship test, and that's going to be uh, kind of the process. Congressional qualifications on the House side: you got to be 25 years old, you got to have been a citizen for seven years, and you have to have lived in the state that you're going to run in for one year. You don't have to live in the district that you're going to run in, but you got to live in the state. I would recommend living in the district, though. On the Senate side, you got to be 30. You got to be nine years a citizen and still the one year thing. All right, powers of the House and Senate. So, overall, the House and the Senate are going to uh, legislate. Now, that's their big job. Uh, they also provide some oversight over bureaucratic agencies. That's another big thing that they do. Um, and then let's talk about some, some differences. So, the House. All revenue things are going to start over there. So taxes are going to start in the House. 
because the House is supposed to be closer to us as individuals and citizens uh, versus the Senate, which is going to represent the entire state. That's the big diff- That's the big House House thing. All right. The Senate, they have advice and consent. So every presidential appointment has to get through the Senate. Every presidential treaty with a foreign country has to get through the Senate. So those are some big differences there. Steps in the legislative process. I really debate on what and how much detail to go into this. So I'm going to make this a quick version. A bill is introduced in the House. It goes to committee. It gets worked on in the committee. And then it goes to the full floor. They debate it. They vote on it. And it'll then cross over and go to the Senate and go through the exact same process. Once the Senate has passed it, it will then go to the president for a signature. That is about a 30-second, if that, snapshot of what happens to a bill. Alrighty. If it starts on the Senate side, it's got to cross over to the House. Now, the key thing that could happen is it has to be the same exact bill. If the House passes one version and the Senate passes another, then it has to go to a conference committee where they will work out the differences. Congressional leadership and committees. So the leadership on the House side is the Speaker of the House. They're the most important position. They drive everything in the House. All righty. Then you got majority minority leaders who are going to work within their parties to make sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to. And then you've got whips who are uh, kind of, I don't want to say assistants, but they help out with the majority minority leaders. And they're going to try and keep uh, congressional members in line, make sure they're voting the way they're supposed to and doing the stuff they're supposed to. On the Senate side, the president of the Senate is the vice president, but they're never there. So we have a president pro tempore who is really just a figurehead honorary position. They don't really do much. And then we have the majority minority leader who they're going to, they play a big role. There's only a hundred people in, in the Senate. So the majority leader and the minority leader play a huge role in doing what needs to be done as far as legislation and getting the party's agenda uh, pushed forward. And then you've got whips over there as well. Uh, on the committees, it's always going to be the majority party having the lead uh, and also having the majority over there. Uh, so that is um, the committees. Lobbyists, lobbyists get paid to try and influence Congress people uh, to make, I don't, how do we say this without sounding dirty? So lobbyists are going to go work with Congress people on legislation. And sometimes the lobbyists are paid by an interest group to get a congressperson to either make changes to a bill, to kill a bill completely, or to pass a bill on. Who knows? Maybe the, the interest group really likes the bill. But that's their job. All right. Uh, and they, they use their influence that they have uh, with the, the uh, Congress people to get that done. Impeachment. Uh, this is a check that Congress has on both the president and judges. Uh, please, if you hear nothing else tonight or today or whatever, whenever you listen to this, know that impeachment is not being removed from office. Impeachment is the formal charges. So the House will formally charge the president or a congressperson, I mean, excuse me, or a judge with some kind of wrongdoing. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be anything. The House can write it up and then vote on it. A simple majority gets you impeached. Once you've been impeached, it then goes to the Senate. They hold a trial. If two-thirds of the Senate says, yes, that is a removable offense, then you're removed from office. We have never had a president removed, remember. Presidential qualifications, you got to be 35 years old. You got to be a natural-born citizen and 14 years in the country. All right, the amendments, the 20th Amendment, pretty simple. It moved the inauguration date of the president from March up to January 20th made it shorter where people aren't going to be uh, between elections that long. The 22nd Amendment set term limits. So a president can serve for two terms or 10 years. It all depends on when you take over as the vice president. 
The 25th Amendment set the line of succession. So who's going to take over for who? Uh, so if something happens to the president, we go to the VP. If something happens to both the president and vice president, we go to the Speaker of the House, so on and so forth. It also set up how the vice president can take control if the president is incapacitated. The 12th Amendment is going to create the uh, two ballots. So it used to be where we'd have the first, the top two vote getters become president and vice president. So John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were president and vice president, although they were political rivals. They'd be like Joe Biden being the president and Donald Trump being the vice president. So we changed it to where uh, we vote separately for that now. And then the 23rd Amendment um, is going to set uh, a number of electors of president and vice president equal to the whole number of senators and representatives in Congress uh, to which the district is entitled. Uh, basically, it gives D.C. some electoral votes. OK, so it gives D.C. some electoral votes. Let's take another break. Be right back. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days, so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Welcome back, American Government Civics. Uh, let's pick up with the roles of the president. So uh, the commander-in-chief is the military. The president is in charge of the military. Pretty quick and simple there. Uh, the president is the chief executive. They are going to be in charge of all those different agencies that you can think of. FBI, CIA, um, FCC, SEC, IRS, just any of those letters that you can throw together. The president is in charge of them. This is where they're enforcing the laws. Okay. Uh, the chief agenda setter. This is where the president has a platform that they have run on and they are going to... Um, try to get that platform completed, all right? So every president runs on, hey, I'm gonna do this, this, and this. And so they wanna try and get that done, that's their agenda. And typically Congress will work with them because you know, when we elect someone, we do elect them, plus we elect their platform. The head of state, the president is kind of a figurehead as uh, the person that's in charge. Uh, a lot of people, when they think of the country, they'll think of the president. The chief diplomat, the president, is responsible for uh, foreign policy plus entertaining foreign dignitaries and things like that. And then the party leader, the president, uh, is not in charge of the Democrat or Republican Party, but they are kind of the figurehead of those parties. And the platforms will kind of fall in line behind the presidential platforms, uh, and they'll work to, to get things done together. All right, the bureaucracy. Uh, you've got different types of agencies. You've got independent regulatory agencies, government corporations, and independent executive agencies. So when you hear independent, first off, know that those are independent of the president. They're independent of Congress for the most part. They don't really take orders or directives uh, from them. Now, we get into a difference here when we say regulatory versus executive agencies. A regulatory agency has some kind of regulatory power. So think of the Federal Communications Commission. They regulate what goes across the airwaves. That's why bad words, you know, curse words can't be said on the radio uh, and on some TV broadcasts and things like that because the FCC regulates the airwaves versus an independent executive agency where they don't necessarily have that regulatory power. All right. So think of NASA. NASA is the space people. They are out there looking, doing what they do with space. It amazes me, but whatever. Uh, they got all this stuff going on, but they can't, they don't really regulate space. There's no uh, regulations on space travel and things like that. Uh, 
Government corporations are businesses run by the government. Think about the Postal Service. Uh, that is a business. Okay, They're supposed to make money, uh, and they're run by the government. Tools to carry out foreign policy, so diplomacy and treaties. Diplomacy is where we talk. We're going to work uh, with different countries uh, and try and work out through talks uh, whatever problems, whatever issues we might have. Typically, this is going to be done through the Secretary of State. Treaties, uh, that goes with diplomacy. So when we work something out, we will oftentimes sign a treaty with another country and say, hey, this is our agreement. Economic, uh, so you know whether we are dealing with economic trade partners or maybe we use economics as a tool to get people to do what we want to. Maybe we cut off trade with somebody or we put embargoes or tariffs or something like that. Military, that's always in our back pocket. We have a strong military, so we can always, I'm not going to say threaten, but we can always have that as a deterrent. If we really want somebody to stop something, uh, maybe we kind of flex our muscles with our military a little bit. Uh, but it is a, a pretty, it's a pretty big tool, but one we don't want to use because we don't want to go uh, and get into trouble and have to you know, do something we don't really want to do where we were just trying to twist somebody's arm a little bit and all of a sudden they push our, our buttons and, and, and kind of call our bluff and whatnot and we have to do something. So uh, it, that's one to use very wisely and limitedly. Humanitarian aid is something that we will send to, to areas that need help, um, whether it's after a natural disaster, whether it is a man-made disaster, uh, whatever it might be. America will be usually at the forefront of sending supplies and aid uh, to places and people. Sanctions. So when we have when a country has done something that we don't like, <clears throat> we will put sanctions on them. Think of tariffs, think of quotas, think of trade embargoes and things like that. Selection and approval of federal judges. So the president selects every judge where there is an opening. The president has a list for every federal judge, whether it be district, appellate, or Supreme Court. The president will pick them. They will then go to the Senate Judiciary Committee for approval. Uh, so they'll go through the approval process, going through the Judiciary Committee where they're asked questions, sometimes very tough questions, and then the, the, the committee will vote on them favorably, probably, and it'll go to the full Senate <clears throat> for final approval. Jurisdiction of the courts. The district court has original jurisdiction. Uh, that means that they are the entry point of federal cases. So if you break federal law, there's a good chance you will go to a district court. All right. Uh, and that is original jurisdiction. Wherever your case enters the court system, that's original. Appeals, they have appellate jurisdiction. Uh, they hear your appeal. So you lost in the district court, but I think this was done unfairly. Let me appeal. So it will go to the appellate court. They are not a traditional court. They do not have evidence and witnesses and testimony and all that kind of stuff. They are looking at the records and looking at your appeal. The Supreme Court has both original and appellate jurisdiction. Uh, they will hear the majority of their case on appeals. Uh, most like 97% come from the appeals. They do hear cases that are state to state. So if a state has a problem with another state, they will do uh, that. Or if there is a foreign dignitary issue, they will hear that case first. Marbury versus Madison, as promised, we're going to hear this, uh, hear about this. So just very quickly, this happened back in the 1800s, way back when. Um, this is the case that created judicial review. Basically, uh, Marbury was supposed to be a federal judge signed into place by Adams, but Jefferson didn't honor it. That's where the problem comes from. And when the court gets it and they're looking at it, they're like, you know what? The whole judicial act is not constitutional. It's something we can't do. And so they blew up the whole constitutional of uh, the whole judicial act. 
And uh, that allowed them to start the whole process of reviewing laws when they're challenged. The court does not just review every single law or policy that has to be challenged. Judicial activism versus restraint. So activism is where the judges are using their own personal beliefs, their own personal ideologies, and they're making decisions that are going to set policy. And it could be used to overturn court cases. It could be used to make uh, new policy across the board. Uh, but it is where the judges take an active role in the policymaking process. A good example of this to me is Brown versus Board of Education back in 1954. In Brown versus Board, they could have very easily have just relied on Plessy versus Ferguson, which created uh, separate but equal back in the 1890s. So for 60 years, the policy in America was separate but equal. But the court said, you know what? Nope. And they overturned that. That's judicial activism, where they use their personal beliefs and they did uh, right by overturning a case that needed to be overturned. More recently, Dobbs versus Mississippi, I would argue that's activism because it's a case that overturned Roe versus Wade. Um, they didn't rely on the precedent. They went their own direction. Judicial restraint is where they rely on original intent. What did the framers think? Uh, what does the Constitution say? What does the Constitution mean by this? And they rely on uh, old court cases as well. Um, so an example of this would be Texas versus Johnson, where there was a flag burning. No one liked this case. No one liked this decision because no one wanted the flag to be burnt. Uh, they wanted to keep the laws that stopped that on the books. The court, though, said, you know what? The Constitution says this, even though everybody else is unhappy, even though everybody else, this is unpopular amongst everybody else. The Constitution says free speech and it applies to symbolic speech and it allows the flag to burn. Civil liberties, those are the protections from the government. The government cannot take these away from you. Those are in our first 10 amendments. So think about like the first amendment, the free speech, free religion. The government can't take those away from you. The civil rights, this is protections from the, or excuse me, the government trying to do the protections. Um, so the government, think about the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That is the government trying to protect different groups. Due process, due process is uh, your rights as an accused person, basically. And if the government is going to try and take away your natural rights, they have to give you due process. They have to treat you fairly throughout the process. So from the time you're a suspect, your Fourth Amendment rights kick in. They cannot unlawfully search you. Your Fifth Amendment rights kick in and they cannot force you to answer the police's questions. They can't make you testify at your trial. The Sixth Amendment rights of a fair trial, speedy trial, lawyer, all those things kick in. The Eighth Amendment, no cruel and unusual punishment. Okay, that's all part of due process. The Fifth Amendment does protect you from having to testify against yourself, and it has been applied to the police as well. The police cannot question you. If you if you say, hey, I'm not going to talk, then don't. You don't have to. You're not required to. That's why we have the Miranda warnings, where you're going to be warned of your right to remain silent. The 14th Amendment guarantees your rights as a citizen, and you have due process as a citizen. You also have equal protection as a citizen. Incorporation just means that we're going to apply these to the states. So for the, a while, the states had said, you know what? The Bill of Rights is just an agreement between the federal government and the citizens, not us. So we don't have to use all those things. Well, they do. All right. And that's what incorporation is. Uh, the fact that the, the national government and the Bill of Rights applies to the states. Amendments that extend the right to vote. The 15th Amendment gave the right to vote to all African-American males. So universal suffrage for men. The 17th Amendment uh, created the direct election of senators. So prior to this, uh, state legislatures would pick our senators. The 17th Amendment says that we get to pick our senators. The 19th Amendment gives women the right to vote. The 24th Amendment bans poll taxes. So no more poll taxes. And the 26th Amendment 
is going to allow 18-year-olds the right to vote. So all of those things are going to make it to where more people can vote or is going to add elections for us to vote in. Procedures in the criminal justice process, uh, you're going to be charged. You're going to have some kind of first appearance. Uh, and then you will get a trial. You'll go through the trial process uh, with you know, evidence being presented, witnesses, and all those sorts of things. And then you will be either found guilty or not guilty. If you're found guilty, then you'll be uh, given a prison sentence and you'll go off to prison. Services provided by state and local government. So schools, that's going to be something. Uh, our local government does a lot of the police services and things like that. And finally, limitations on state and local government that are exercised by citizens. There's three things to know here. Initiatives, referendums, and recalls. Initiatives, this is where we as citizens work to get something on the ballot. So maybe we want to see um, school, high school, start an hour later. Seven o'clock is too early. We want to see it start at eight o'clock. So we go out and we get the necessary signatures and all those sorts of things. Uh, and we get that initiative on the ballot for people to vote on. A referendum is where we get to decide things. So sometimes uh, the local government will allow citizens to decide issues. So for example, a long time ago, there was no Sunday sales of alcohol in Gwinnett County. Uh, they put it on the ballot in each city whether to allow Sunday sales of alcohol. And across the board, except for one city, and I can't remember what it is now, everybody said, yeah, allow Sunday sales of alcohol. That's a referendum. And then finally, as a recall, uh, if we are upset with some of our elected officials, so think of a mayor, a governor, something like that, if we collect the correct amount of signatures, we can get a recall election where we would basically have the choice to first off, do we want to unelect the person that we elected? And then if we voted yes, that we want to unelect this person, then we can vote for somebody new. So that's a recall. All right, guys, there is your review. Best of luck on all your final exams. I hope you make hundreds on everything. And then you have a great uh, break and a good second semester uh, in economics. All right, guys, take care and let me know if I can help you. Bye-bye.